0: Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. A motion set uh, at the end of uh, this month could see the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board continue to use the curriculum that was set in place uh, by the previous government. Of course, we know that since the Doug Ford government was sworn in, uh, one of their first actions they did was to what they call cancel the sex ed curriculum. Which, uh, well, now they seem to be backtracking on just a little bit. If you hear some of the comments from the education minister from yesterday. But uh, the Hamilton Board, and I'm told other boards around the province, are trying to move forward, notwithstanding what seems to be happening at Queen's Park these days. Todd White, of course, is the uh, chairman of the board for the Hamilton Board of Education and the trustee for Ward 5. joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, add some clarity to what's going on. Todd, good morning. Welcome to the show again. Yeah, welcome, Bill. Uh, I, I know none of us were surprised when the government made the announcement. Uh, they talked about this all through the campaign. Uh, and uh, and not, so it didn't shock anybody. That's that's to be sure. But what was your reaction? How do as as a, a school board? Uh, I, I want to do this in parts, and we'll start with, right at the beginning when they made that announcement. How do you respond? How are you supposed to respond to a change in curriculum like this?
1: Well, well, basically the ministry has the complete authority over the curriculum. So each board is obligated to follow the provincial curriculum. Um, they set that out in a number of. Uh, um, well, number of documents that you can find online, and uh, in terms of school boards and uh, what happens following that is obviously the teachers uh, teach that curriculum. Uh, that's what we use to assess or grade students. Um, it's also the, the document that we would use to uh, uh, assess the performance of uh, of staff and uh, what's expected of them.
0: How much wiggle room do you have within a curriculum?
1: Uh, Virtually, in terms of the actual curriculum that's set, we none, (laughs) basically in a nutshell. However, where boards do have uh, some authority, and in particular the the staff, uh, each individual staff, they have authority over the delivery of uh, the curriculum. So that might look differently between classrooms, um, each teaching style. Um, Teachers will often gear it to, uh, obviously, their own teaching style, as well as uh, the makeup of uh, their classroom.
0: But there's, it's like a, a method here, you know, ding, 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 you have to check this box, check this box, you cover this, you did this, you did this. How they do it, I guess, is obviously open to the style of each individual teacher.
1: Yeah, that's right, and and, and the discussions around those topics uh, can vary. Um, the examples that are used, you know, the, 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 the different types of... Uh, Uh, discussion, small group work, you know, whatever that looks like. That really is up to the teacher and the delivery. Um, So there are opportunities to weave in um, other examples and topics. Um, And I think in this case, that's kind of where our board is is thinking at this point.
0: I know you're well-versed in in the previous policy uh, that you've been using for the last number of years, Mm -hmm. Todd. And and with that in mind, how frustrated were you with the the misrepresentations of, of that curriculum by some of the people who had opposition to it?
1: Yeah, and I think I think you framed it exactly, <laughs> exactly right. Which is uh, a lot of the discussion centered around um, gender identity debate on whether that should be taught to students. Uh, also LGBTQ issues, um, but let's be honest: whether you're looking at the older new curriculum, those topics arise. Um, and they'll rise in the classroom with or without the new curriculum. Uh, so th- those discussions seem to have been hijacked in, in some ways, and there's a lot of misinformation that was shared. Uh, we found when we held our info sessions across the city and spoke with families and uh, parents, when we shared the correct information and, and some of the um, comparable data uh, between the two curriculum, that most left very comfortable with uh, the new curriculum. And in fact, um really had uh, no concerns following that. So it actually has been a pretty non-issue, I think, after the fact with our board. So it's a bit surprising to revisit uh, those discussions. Uh, But that being said, uh, we haven't received clear directions from the the ministry yet, aside from an intent to uh, review it.
0: Yeah, and therein lies part of the frustration because even what the minister said yesterday seemed to contradict what she said a couple of days before that. But but I, I understand how frustrating you must feel about this, and how frustrated your your board members and and frankly a lot of your your staff, your teachers would feel about this. Uh, you know, when you hear people coming on the radio and and you know making op-ed pieces in the in newspapers and saying, well, they're teaching masturbation to kids in grade three. And you figure, that's not true. It's just not true. And, it, I mean, they're only displaying their own ignorance of the curriculum. Well, but it, it did them. it did taint the the, the debate, didn't it?
1: Well, well, and that's it. I mean, there are topics that are, are taught at certain grade levels. And if you're to ask someone off the top of their head, what grade level is it taught? I mean, you wouldn't even know what it, which one was uh it would have fallen under a 98 curriculum versus the 2015. I mean, the changes were, were not that drastic, if anything. Um, they were pretty uh, uh, tempered in terms of uh, the changes and the consultations that took place. So, you know, I think what we say, you know, as any organization, uh, you know, change is always difficult, but also kind of going... Two steps back is, is probably even more difficult where you've just implemented something and now you're going back on it. But like I said, when we get the details to the ministry, I, I suspect it'll be somewhere in between the two. Um, I don't think they're going to roll back the whole curriculum. Uh, we haven't heard yet exactly what it's going to look like. But like you said, judging from the minister's comments yesterday, there's going to be somewhere in the middle of uh, the two extremes, I would imagine.
0: And, and on the topic of, of opposition to, to sex ed, if I could use that broad umbrella, which, I, again, I don't think is, is really a justification of what's being taught in the classroom, but under that, guys, uh, from your time as, as, uh, as a trustee, there's always going to be an element of people that are going to disagree with this. I mean, even under the quote-unquote old curriculum that was taught before that, there were some people that wanted to pull their kids out. They just don't like it. They don't feel comfortable with it. So it's, it's something you've had to deal with, and other board members have had to deal with for quite some time.
1: Well, and, and that's it, and and I think that's one of the other misunderstandings is that you actually can opt your child out of the sexual health, also known as the sex ed component of the curriculum. So it is taught in a, uh, a clustered um piece of the curriculum usually in around spring so if a parent's uncomfortable with the curriculum and, and it's all laid out so we can go through every last detail so a parent knows what their child's going to learn there are some parents that feel those discussions should happen at home and there's a lot more parents who feel that they prefer it in the classroom um, but that being said um, parents do have that ultimate authority but to give you you know some rough numbers it's, it's not overwhelming the number of uh, students. Our, our families that decide to opt out. Um, we're talking, you know, maybe two dozen at best across our entire board of uh, uh, 48,000 students.
0: To that point, uh, that this is something that should be taught at home, uh, I, I want to get your, your read on this and the board's policy on this. With, with sex ed or any other topic that you're teaching, whether it's history, whether it's any other number of different things, uh, I, I was always under the impression that, that what is taught through the curriculum at school is not to replace what parents do, it's to enhance what parents do. In other words, it's to, en- it, it's to engage in, in the students in a conversation about that, which hopefully they will take home.
1: Well, and that's the same thing when you, when you talk about religion. We don't teach students what to believe. Uh, we provide them the information and we give them the skills to uh, uh, weigh that information and then obviously go home and continue those conversations with their families. So that's where we want to be balanced in that, you know, and we always encourage families to be involved in uh, curriculum content. So, you know, whether you're talking sex ed or math or history or what have you, uh, when a student goes home at the end of the day, the parents can continue those discussions. I mean, that's just healthy conversation. Um, So so really it all falls within those same categories. It's just when you say the word sex ed, I think, you know, everyone gets a little bit uncomfortable and uh, it kind of changes the discussion a bit. But on the surface, um, or really, when you d- dig down, um, it isn't different. I mean, it's another piece of the curriculum, like a, like any other topic.
0: So where do you go for, from here? I mean, like you say, we, we're not quite sure. I mean, it's uh, you know we're, we're heading towards the end of July here very quickly, and and, and I know people are going to say, well, summer's only half over, uh, but you guys have got to start putting stuff together for next year. I mean, you know, the day after Labor Day, you know, the rubber hits the road here. How do you deal with this aspect of the curriculum
1: at this stage? Well, and, and that's a funny thing. Um, Uh, sex ed or or the the sexual health component of the curriculum. There's only one piece of the larger uh, health and physical education curriculum which runs all year long. So that includes your typical gym class, uh, for instance, that uh, occurs, you know, weekly or whatever throughout your... uh, uh, your your classroom. But uh, it also would include things like learning about how to eat healthy and healthy foods. And then there's a component on sexual health. So it really varies uh, considerably between uh, different times of the year. So to say we're going to change the entire curriculum, you know, that could very well refer to everything from September to June. If they're going to focus on the sexual health portion, well, that's a couple of weeks that we tend to implement in the spring. So we're really going to be looking for the direction. How much is is it really going to change? Um, and then, of course, our debate and discussion at the end of the month as a board will be um, what local influence do we have uh, to uh, try to promote or, or ensure that some of those topics around things like consent or um lgbtq examples and gender identity you know are woven in as examples that teachers may be able to use with their uh, professional judgment
0: well they're part of the frustration i'm sure that you and every other board are, are undergoing right now todd uh you've got this broad stroke from the province that says we're, we we're going to cancel this but they're not telling you what not to do they're not telling you what to do but they're not telling you what not to do either
1: well, oh, well, and that's and exactly. So I think it really goes. It comes down to the professional judgment the of teachers. They're going to react to the nature of their classroom. If students are asking the types of questions um, around LGBTQ issues, or you know, whatever. Uh, teachers are going to be transparent they're going to answer those questions they're going to react to what's in the news and what's being discussed you know in the in the schools and in the classrooms anyway so i think that's where i I don't think we're fearful about those examples um let's be honest even before the uh 2015 curriculum came out a number of those topics were woven in anyways it's not as if the same curriculum um and examples were used in 98 as they were in 2014 uh the, the while the curriculum was the same the discussion certainly evolved with uh everything that's changed in our in our society.
0: So uh, what what you're saying then is the elements and and maybe we can classify them as the controversial elements of this much broader uh, curriculum aspect that you're dealing with here uh, probably aren't going to be contentious issues until well after Christmas anyway.
1: Oh, exactly, and they usually wouldn't arise until, until the spring. So, I mean, we're very transparent when it comes down to uh, uh, the sexual health component of the curriculum. We send letters home to parents. They're fully informed before their students, uh, before we start that unit, uh, so they know what their students are learning. So, so I think uh, for the most part, we want to keep everyone well informed and ensure that you know, some of that misrepresentation uh, doesn't flow uh, you know, to parents and you know, mislead them in terms of what their students are learning.
0: Uh, by the way, just uh, since I've got you here, and we're talking about curriculum, uh, there was another element to the announcement, of course. It was, uh, was also a change to the math program. That's right. Uh, let's, let's talk about the implications of that and, and, and how you have to move forward on that.
1: Yeah, and so far, you know, that's very similar to the, the sex ed component, where right now it's really about a, a, you know, a sentence or two and a greater letter that we've received. And the indication that we have from the province at this point is they're going to um, roll back or reintroduce some of the old methods. Of teaching math. Um, beyond that kind of description, we don't know a lot more uh, at this point. But we imagine by September they'll be issuing policy memos to boards, telling us how to implement um, those teaching methods and uh, uh, curriculum.
0: But how does that impact your teaching staff? I, I mean, these, these are these are people that have to obviously implement these programs, and I mean there has to be, I would imagine, some sort of a, a, a program or some time frame for them to actually understand and relearn what the, the what the, the ministry is trying to get them to do at this stage.
1: Yeah, well, and that's it, and, and that's where we'll, I mean, no doubt comply and ensure that we follow uh, the direction, but, you know, like any change, and we see this all the time, and you you see it in education quite a bit, where whether it's a board or a ministry, you know, has new direction, and, you know, teachers are just, you know, along for the ride, <laughs> and every couple of years, you know, some new fancy, uh, you know, programs introduced, and then they have to relearn everything that they've, you uh, uh, they've been teaching, but and I think that's often unfair to teachers. So I think it really is a balance to try to um, make sure that we equip them. But at the same time, you know, you make a good point. We've spent probably the vast number of years, you know, introducing the new uh, the new curriculum and some of the new styles for learning math, and then now we're going to kind of go back to what we did before. So I'm sure there'll be some frustration in the classroom. But uh, let's also on the flip side, I'll admit that math is a big problem across the province so i mean what's what's happening right now in the status quo you know isn't isn't uh working if you're looking at eqao data um so you know i think change and review is welcome um but i think it's more complex than just rolling it back Um, one way or another we need to move forward so the question is uh what's the new approach and is it actually going to uh uh help uh math uh across the province
0: the minister did say the other day that uh, there was going to be a, what they called extensive public consultation about these changes as you guys move forward. Are you going to be a partner in that, or are you going to do your own uh, consultations and, and try to get input, or are you simply going to wait till the province comes back and says, here's what we've learned?
1: Well, and that's it. I, I think, I mean, at this point, it's the province who are hosting the consultations, Even when the newer curriculum was reintroduced, um, you know, whether it's math or, or, or sex ed, you um, the province held the consultations. We basically held info sessions to say, okay, here's the data, and we further explained what was going on. I mean, the biggest, you know, I think you said this earlier, you know, consultation, I mean, it all depends on how it's, how it's designed. We don't want to reopen a debate around you know, whether students should hear about LGBTQ issues in the classroom or whether gender identity is appropriate. I mean, we were well past that. Those are topics that are going to be taught in the classroom under uh, whether it's the old curriculum or the new curriculum. Um, Those aren't the debatable items, so I'd be very interested to see how the consultation's framed to make sure we're actually asking the right questions and hopefully informing parents what sections they actually have input on and what sections are really not even part of the consultations.
0: Well, it's, uh, it's going to be interesting going forward, especially since uh, the minister seems to have uh, changed their their approach to this a little bit, and we just don't know how far they're going to go. But certainly we'll talk about that as we get uh, new directives, obviously, from the ministry. Todd, thanks, as always, for the time. Greatly appreciated. Yeah, thanks, Bill. Have a good one. You betcha. Todd White, uh, Chairman of the Board of Hamilton, Board of Education. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, Chief's Town Hall, Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert is with us here in studio. Welcome back. Good to see you again, Chief. Thanks, Bill. Uh, happy to have you on, and thanks for having us. Well, since you uh, were with us last time, there have been a few things changed, uh, yeah, not just here in town, but of course in the, on, on, on a provincial level. We had the election, of course, and, and uh, the Ford government has now been sworn in. Uh, one of the first things that they talked about was uh, putting a hold on some of the pe- previous pieces of legislation that the previous Attorney General and uh, legislature had passed. And and one of those had to do, and I get my bills mixed up all the time. I know that you memorize these things. That's part of your job. Uh, but, but the one about Bill 175, first of all, let's talk about that and the implications. Uh, there's been a lot of controversy about police actions, police policies, not just here in Hamilton, but all over the place. Uh, they had public meetings about that. They crafted a new piece of legislature that they said was going to address this. And uh now the provincial government says put the brakes on that. We're not sure about that. How does that react how does that leave you re- uh, as vis-a-vis policy and 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 your officers on the street?
2: Yeah, so a couple of things. We've uh represented uh, the police perspective from the OACP the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police which I'm on the executive there. Uh so we're looking to meet with uh, the Ford government and kind of review again, much like we did with the Liberal government, our position relative to chiefs. Um, it's been an odd piece of legislation. I don't know if that's, um, you know, too critical. But uh, because it was never put in place entirely, there's five or six major sections. Uh, the latest one that was put on hold was the Ontario Special Investigations uh, Unit uh Act, which was looking at expanding really the mandate of the SIU, we had civilians who were drawn into that net, so to speak, in terms of their actions and what, what they might do. That,
0: that's really about oversight, a special investigations Correct. unit of the SIU for people that don't, underst- or don't know the acronym.
2: Yeah, and uh, obviously they're expanding the mandate. Um, we were looking forward to some of the timeline deliveries because, as you know, the SIU has taken years in some cases to come back with a decision on uh, you know, the actions of the police officer relative to the citizen and what happened. And in the vacuum that happens because they're doing their investigation, uh, the dialogue gets filled in through conjecture and all kinds of other things. Uh, Much like we do in day-to-day policing, we try to get as many facts out as we can so the public knows what's going on. This has been one of the criticisms of the SIU relative to their investigations. You have the incident, they invoke, and then we don't hear a lot more from the SIU. So we're looking forward to increased timelines being sooner than later, uh, to get the information out to the public because as you know, public trust is very important to us, but also what happened at the scene, and they have to interview witnesses much like we do, do the investigation, but the timelines for two or three years in some cases for fatal interactions, it's just way too long. So that's a piece we're going to be missing out on. We've supported
0: that. In terms of the accountability and oversight... I, just on that sure. point yeah. though, Chief, and, and I'm not asking you to get inside the heads of the government when they made they, this announcement, but that facet of it, why would you hold that up? I mean, whose who's toes are you stepping on by doing something like that? That's expediting the process, and it's not just good for the, the, the victim's families or others involved in that, but also for the officers that may be involved. I guess they're in limbo until you get a, a final decision on this.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, business as usual up until the time as they amend the act, so we still have oversight. The SAU still does have deliverables and a mandate. Uh, they're expanding uh, their ears, uh, you know, somewhat, uh, but really when we're looking at just as inquiry around uh, the uh, collection of information in certain circumstances he talked about memorizing it. prohibitions and duties otherwise uh, you know known as street checks um, he has already come back mandated by the government to re-examine and we've met with him a number of the agencies have he's done a lot of public consultation on this again it'll be very interesting what his report back to the new conservative government will be. So we're waiting on that. And uh, of course we've cooperated and we, we understand and we, we support the accountability and transparency particularly with civilian oversight agencies and in ontario we're one of the jurisdictions that has the most oversight to begin with and they've expanded well that's fine uh because you know we have a fair bit of authority uh you know relative to our jobs and positions you can you know take somebody's liberty away uh use force in certain circumstances which can be lethal um but you know so there's a lot of accountability that should apply uh, relative to the government, I think they want to take a pause, and the, um, the Provincial Attorney General just said it yesterday in question period. They're taking a pause. They're having a look at it. You've got the Police Association of Ontario speaking to government. You have uh, the board speaking to the government, ourselves through the OACP. Uh, so I think it's not a bad idea to have another look. <clears throat> what they're going to do with the legislation, I really don't know. Uh, but it was coming out, as I said at the start, in pieces anyway. Uh, it's just the deliverables and the timelines and if they're going to make adjustments.
0: Well, because one of the contentious issues, I, I just talked about I, what I think is one of the non-contentious issues, but one of the ones that seemed to give a lot of people pause for concern was, was one of the, uh, the clauses on there that talked about a significant fine or penalty, financial penalty, to officers that are found culpable of, of whatever they're being charged with uh which is somewhat problematic i mean I, that kind of came out of the blue i don't know if it was obviously included in somebody's session uh, in one of those public meetings but it was rather interesting that it was included in that legislation i don't know if that's the reason for throwing the whole thing uh, in you know uh off to the side for the next little while but uh, it, it did seem to be one of the contentious issues yeah and i
2: mean relevant legislation it's over 200 pages like this has been the la- uh, the first major revision since 1990. Um, so you know, could they have done it in smaller pieces through the course of time? Certainly, in retrospect or uh, you know, in, in retrospective view, that would be a good idea. So this is really a huge change to so many facets, including hearing officers, including accommodation issues. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And then you've got other acts like the Coroner's Act that are amended as well uh, that are ancillary to that. So when you talk about Bill 175, it's kind of hard to parse off all the little pieces that are in it. So when they say they're going to pause and have a look. I don't think that's necessarily a bad idea. You know, are they going to throw the whole thing out? My sense would be no. Yeah, There's been a lot of work that, that's that gone into it. I mean, the community and safety well-being plan, that part's already been passed. It starts in 2019. It's the responsibility of the municipality to put that together. And when we're looking at agencies working cooperatively, look, just look at the opioid crisis. You know, if we do um, education, um, alternate strategies to have people not involved in the first place, I'm all for that. It's all crime prevention. Like we're dealing with the tail end when people have the addictions and then are either acting out or doing things that are either uh, harmful to themselves or others. Well, I'd rather not happen at all. You know, is that realistic? No. But we need to work with all uh, these other agencies and really the community safety well-being plan does that it doesn't say the police are at the center of it anymore. It says all these agencies, education, social services, uh, Aboriginal communities, they're, and they all need to be involved in
0: coming up with the approach. Yeah, but isn't that the more pragmatic approach? I mean, to your uh, point, I think so. I mean, you know, it's 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 laudable to suggest you'd like to see this go down to zero and not have it as a yeah. problem at all. But the pragmatic approach to this is, well, let's let's do something to mitigate those numbers and, yes. and lower those, like like any other yeah. element that you're dealing with, whether it's break-ins or auto theft right. or anything else. It's, it's probably never going to be zero, but you want to make it as low as you possibly can.
2: Well, exactly. And I mean, you know, if you le- look at the Police Services Act, our first mandate is around crime prevention. So the ideas don't have it in the first place. It's the old, you know, uh, an ounce of prevention worth a pound of cure. Fundamentally, that makes sense. And when you look at cost analysis on crime, it does make sense to front end load it. The difficulties with it is how do you show what didn't happen. So when you're looking at to benchmarks and academic research and how can you quantify it, sometimes it's very difficult to show this had a direct impact on reducing things.
0: Uh, the other element to this, and I want to get into it in just a couple of seconds, because uh, maybe we're going to wait a few minutes till after the break, because it may go on for a little while because it's a more contentious issue, and that has to do with things like street checks. Uh, just a quick email, though, uh, as we go along on the program. It's uh, the Chief's Town Hall here on CHML. You can reach us by email, bkelly at 900chml.com, or on Twitter at chmlbillkelly, or by phone, if you like, 905-645-3221, 645-3221. Star 9900, a toll-free number on the cell phones. Uh, We'll go to your calls and uh, your emails and tweets in a couple of seconds. One that I wanted to jump out here, too, because I know you're going to get into this in greater detail in a couple of minutes about the uh, the new pot legislation that comes into effect in October. But uh, Ryan asks, uh, will zero tolerance for commercial drivers and legal marijuana apply when they're driving their personal car, not their work vehicle?
2: Yeah, and I don't have any specific information about that, if they're going to make it relative to uh, commercially qualified drivers. Uh, but I do know from a, a standpoint about uh, physical impairment by other drugs or alcohol, and the message we've been getting out is, it's always been prohibited. And in fact, the code already reads that you can be impaired by drug or alcohol. Uh, it's just that drugs were less common in terms of evidentiary um, pieces coming into the courts and saying this is what the person consumed. What we're relying on (coughs) in terms of an approach is describing the behavior of the driver, the physical symptoms. So whether we not, and we don't have anything for approved screening devices passed yet in terms of a device that will be allowed, um, we're looking at what were the physical symptoms of that driver. And so we focused on standard field sobriety testing and we've increased that training through the police college for our members. And the other piece that we moved to years ago when I was a breath tech was drug recognition experts. Uh, the difficulty with a DRE or drug recognition expert is to become qualified, you actually have to go down to the states um, and qualify with live subjects who have consumed whatever the substance is. You can understand the, the issues around that if we're going to come to Canada and say, oh, by the way, here's some methamphetamine, which is prohibited,
0: and I'm going to check you to see – so these are the issues but how pragmatic is it to do that i mean i i know some of your officers uh, you know for instance they'll go down to quantico to, to that training center and take extra courses yep. and, and and i know a number of people in yep. hamilton police services have done that over the years but but i read about the course that you're just talking yep. about and it's in california the one that i read about anyway yes. i don't know if there are any others uh, Jacksonville, uh, Florida, but yeah. Okay, the, the, you can only accommodate so many officers, and you've got officers from all over North America that really need to be qualified in this now.
2: Right, and in light of the the legislation that's coming, uh, we have been pushing both through the Canadian Association, Chiefs of Police, and locally, to say, can we get training in Canada? To It's very costly to send them down to uh, Jacksonville or wherever. Uh, So it's actually the International Association of Chiefs of Police that have set the standards for the drug recognition expert qualification. So we've been petitioning them to say, we we need to come up with a more cost-effective solution. We need to have volume in terms of our officers who are qualified on this, and it's just way too costly and time-consuming to do all this other stuff. Can we come up with an alternate solution? So that, that work's going on, too.
0: Well, when the government says, and I'm talking <coughs> about the federal government in this circumstance, that uh, they're allocating so much money for education, and, and I assume by that they mean public education, but at the same time, you'd think that there would be some financing uh, mechanism for for officer education about this as well. Yeah,
2: and we're still waiting to see that come through because you're also looking at uh, dispensaries and the regulation of uh, the sale of marijuana. Uh, Some of that money has gone towards the municipalities to fund that aspect. And quite frankly, you know, I don't want to get into the regulatory business of how a dispensary runs, and you know, I'm not a chemist. We're not chemists, and it's really not a law enforcement issue, in my view. Once they approve it, it's a regulatory issue. There's that piece. Uh, there have been talk uh, from the federal government to say 81 million dollars over five years, and they were looking at, as you say, education, equipment for officers, and that would be the roadside screening devices, training for the officers. So we still wait to see how that is being rolled out by the federal government. We're prepared. Actually, we've done the study to say here's what we believe we'll need. But again, I need to know the cost of the equipment, which hasn't been approved uh, before I can make a, you know, uh, an exact submission. But we know there's increased training. We know there's increased enforcement. We know there's, um, you know, in some of the uh, jurisdictions where we looked at, there's an increase in accidents and fatal collisions. That's largely coming out of Colorado. So there's all these ancillary effects as well. And yeah, we'll be looking for funding for that, whether it's officers to do the enforcement or do the additional investigations.
0: We know it's coming. I mean, you know, we've already given the date. It's going to be mid-October when this actually comes into law and becomes law here in, in the country, not just here in the province of Ontario. And, and you're right, there's still a lot of questions to be answered, uh, how it's going to be dispensed, etc. What are you doing in the meantime? I mean, because we've got a lot of dispensaries that are, are operating in this city right now. Yeah, so we continue to enforce. We've shut down actually
2: 42, but many of them open up either day or two later at a new location with new people. And then we'll follow up on that and arrest again and charge. Uh, before the courts, many of these charges still remain there. And what the courts are going to decide in terms of um, process, the fact is it's illegal now. Uh, so whether it's going to be legalized in future really doesn't affect the fact that it's, you know, it's against law currently. So we continue to do the enforcement. Uh, obviously, we have to seize all this product, store it. This leads to additional costs. You've got the warrants. You've got to get... And information to obtain a warrant. It's not just a matter, and I know kind of some of the public perspective is, well, it's illegal. Why don't you just walk in and, and seize all the stuff and, uh, you know, walk out with it and charge the people. It's not quite that straightforward. We have to have uh, legal authority to do what we do. That includes warrants, observations, information that goes before justice. Uh, so we continue to do that work. Uh, the fact that uh, the previous government had said they're going to regulate it similar to LCBOs, I understand that the current government has vacillated back and forth, but my understanding is uh, they're looking at that scheme as well because then you have uh, the framework in place to do uh, the regulation of those businesses if you build it on LCBO model. I'm in support of that, again, because then you've got um, the oversight, uh, you know, inspectors to check on all that stuff that is really, quite frankly, not a policing function but a regulatory function. So uh, we still, uh, and I realize it's a fairly new government, wait to see what uh, the Ford government's going to do relative to the provincial regulation of these things.
0: Uh, I can, We have to do a break in a second, but just on our conversation here about impaired driving, and yes. whether it's alcohol, whether it's pot, whatever the case might be. Uh, Brian, on Twitter at CHML, Bill Kelly brings up an interesting point here uh, about uh, legitimate medications. That still falls under that umbrella, doesn't it? You, it's, it's no excuse to say, well, I'm taking such and such painkillers or whatever. You're still under the influence of something if you're behind the wheel.
2: Uh, correct. And, and I think I've talked about it before when I was a breath tech, I had a person convicted of impaired by drug. Alone, where they'd had uh, medication dispense them. It said right on the, the um, on the label on the medication which they had that says do not operate heavy machinery. The doctor told which them that to drive, a which <laughs> includes a car, which includes a car because it's fairly heavy. And uh, so yes, y- you've still got the requirement. And this is where I'm going back to the physical symptoms of impairment you know, whether it's by drug or alcohol, and and really they're both drugs, um, doesn't really matter. It's the effect on the driving and your ability to react to all the things you have to. So a, it's always been prohibited. Uh, B, uh, you know, it's, it's exercising common sense, to your point, where you got some kind of heavy medication for pain. Probably a good idea to take a taxi or a bus or something else. Um, don't be driving a vehicle. And, and generally speaking, physicians will tell you uh, you shouldn't be operating heavy vehicles or machinery. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900
0: CHML. It's the Chiefs Town hall, Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gert with us. Uh, your turn here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. In fact... We we'll go to the phones right now, Frank. Uh, thank you for holding on through the break. How are you doing this morning, Frank?
3: I'm just fine, uh, thank you, and good morning, gentlemen. Good
2: morning,
0: uh,
3: Chief Gert. I'm, uh, as a citizen, I'm upset with the carding designation or rule. If I've got it right, now correct me if I'm wrong. That you cannot even apprehend somebody that you are uh, a police officer might be in suspicion of, uh, unless they have good reason. How is that implemented? And I feel so as though if a crime was foreseeably in the making, uh, i.e., someone's running down and looking back, trying to, it's sounding like a police officer uh, as well, knowing that there's something uh, awry there, they cannot approach the person. Is that correct? And I want to know your, your take on this, if you can answer that for me first, uh, and to whether or not it is, well, I'll simply say, the right or the wrong way to go. I, I don't think it is. Actually, I'm going to bow out, and if you can elaborate on that to your uh, in-heart
0: feeling, I'd appreciate that, okay? Okay, Okay, thanks, Frank. Good idea. Thanks so much, Frank. Appreciate the call. Yeah,
2: and when the legislation was contemplated, we were not in opposition because uh, as a police officer, you are required to legally articulate why you were doing what you're doing. To go on the basis of arbitrary detention, which is what most of the opposition is, you know, I'm just stopping you because, really doesn't uh, stand up to scrutiny, and particularly where uh, things can go. Relative to suspicious conduct, if you're saying, and if it reached the threshold in terms of some kind of criminal activity or about to commit a criminal offense, certainly we would. Uh, relative to stopping, you can still stop somebody. What you have to do, though, is provide the reason to that person uh, through uh, a receipt as to why you stopped them. So it's not prohibited in that sense. Um, you know, kind of one of the standard things I used to talk about relative legislation when first contemplating it is: that you have a homeowner who makes a phone call in the middle of the night to say you've got a person now could be on their property, which changes context could be off their property but fundamentally they're phoning to say i think there's a suspicious person out in the roadway please come and do your job fundamentally then our officers respond uh, if you cannot articulate why you're stopping somebody in the middle of the street then uh, you you can't do that however if they're on their property and it's at night and you have a potential prowl by night uh, which is the section, then you have to legally articulate why that is and why you're stopping the person finding out whether all that type of stuff. The other thing is, we're not prohibited from talking to people. And that's different from asking their name and identification. I can, uh, part of community policing, and there's case law on this as well, is a requirement, not just by the police, but by the community to participate in the safety of the community. And as I say, the case law has spoken to this about uh, the larger citizens' obligation to cooperate for the purposes of community safety. Now uh, what that's not covering is that kind of arbitrary tension where somebody just stops you and says who are you what are you doing? Um, The who are you is the part. Now that doesn't mean an officer can't come up and speak to somebody. Uh, We have no prohibition against that. If they choose not to engage in the conversation uh, they can certainly do that. Um, You know and again relative to articulating why you're doing what you're doing. The requirement is there, it was there before the COI legislation came on, uh, or the collection of information in certain circumstances, prohibitions and duties. I wish they'd come up with a shorter phrase, but that's what it is. Um, So there was always a legal obligation in terms of the case law, in terms of constitution, um, and we had been training on that basis for some time to say, here's the case law, here's what you're allowed to do. Uh, Quite frankly, from our, our, our frontline members' perspective, They should be able to legal articulate why they're doing what they're doing. So, for example, uh, you're driving in a vehicle and you've committed an offence. Well, then you were required to identify yourself under the Highway Traffic Act. That is not a COI stop. It's not. Uh, I'm stopping you because I know you're wanted on a warrant. That's not a COI stop. All those provisions are actually covered in the COI legislation.
0: Another example, okay, and and this is actually a a truism. I mean, uh, Marcy E and, uh, of course, the CTV personality... Uh, got stopped some time ago and and, and, uh, alleged at that time that she was being targeted because of racial profiling uh, and uh, that uh, the officer contended that she had run a stop sign, I believe it was, but it was, Mm -hmm. about four or five blocks before that and uh, actually stopped her in the driveway. Now, Mm -hmm. in a situation like that, uh, is, is is that officer uh, required to ask for name in that particular situation, or what are you doing here, or what? I'd well, wait. if I'm
2: investigating for the purpose of a stop sign violation, then, yes, I can ask a name, and you're required under the highway draft for that to identify yourself your okay. driver's license, all those things. But if
0: I'm walking down the street, even if it's 1 o'clock in the morning and an officer drives by and says, who are you and what are you doing here, I, I don't have to answer that.
2: Depending on the circumstances. And, again, if the officer says to you, We just got a description of this person who was uh, alleged to committed this offense. Depending on what happens, I'm I'm not making I'm just saying. Yeah, okay. You know, I have an obligation too when I get a suspect description, and, you know, he's wearing a white shirt and blue jeans and this tall and that. You match the description relative to an offense. Now, again, I'm going to have to tell you why I'm asking you who you are. We have had the report of a break and enter in the site, da, da 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 da, as opposed to, you know, not telling you any reason why I'm stopping you, um, but I could stop you for that purpose, for the purpose of investigation. Again, that's legally articulable.
0: But why then? And I, I, I'm not going to ask you why the controversy, because that we'd be here for the next three days talking about that. Uh, over the last number of years about you know the phrase some people use of course is carding and that's a whole different circumstance that has declined but so have the number of street checks declined in in the last little while and and I've talked to officers on the street and I've talked to the police association of course and mm-hmm. and they just say look at we you know what it's not worth the hassle anymore it it is good policing and and they all agree that that's what they should be doing but they say you know what you get caught up in red tape and and, and there's accusations made and you can't justify that cuz You know, it's one person's word against the other in situations like that. Now there's a concern in in many communities that we're not getting the level of policing that we really need because officers are concerned about those ramifications.
2: And what I can tell you from the outset, we have never supported prior to COI legislation. We've never supported the arbitrary detention, meaning it's on a whim. We've never supported that. And that's that's a constitutional guarantee. However, if you're doing it for the purpose of investigation, you're doing it for the purpose of enforcement, you have a legally articulable reason as to why you're stopping. We have encouraged our officers in this jurisdiction to continue because that's fundamental policing. So I'll give you a quick example. You do the traffic stop. As a result of the traffic stop, there's drugs in plain view at at the console, whether it's cocaine or something else. I would expect our officers to continue on in that investigation then you may in fact have a gun in the back as often drugs and guns are not every time but often they're connected but you have to be able to legally articulate one while you entered in the search two why you're seizing it in the first place three why did you stop the person in the first place because when you go to prosecution in court you're still going to be able to have to articulate why you did what you did if it's strictly arbitrary it's not going to stand up to the test in court and that makes for bad case law so you know, we continue to support the actions of our officers when they are legally doing their job properly to continue on doing that work.
0: All right, but it, there seems to be two standards here, one for vehicular stops and then one for, for pedestrians, for lack of a better expression. Uh, and, and the vehicular stops seem to be a whole different situation because, obviously, to get somebody to stop a vehicle, right. you, you probably have to have some cause. You can't just flag your car down and say, what are you doing here at 1 o'clock in the morning? At least I hope that's not what happens. But under those circumstances, uh, you have to at least have a reason for that, mm-hmm. um, other
2: than ride lanes. Ride lanes have been guaranteed. Yeah. It's been through the through this to the Supreme Court to say, for the purposes of public safety, that in fact is an arbitrary stop. It's like we're not singling you out as a member of the public. We're saying that courts have said that's a reasonable limitation to the Constitution for everybody's traffic safety. Now you're talking about
0: pedestrians. So it's different. Uh, no, uh, okay. But back to the vehicular. Get to the pedestrians in a second. When that officer m- makes that decision, and that that person in the vehicle does pull over, whether it's for a broken taillight or for hmm. for a, maybe erratic driving, could be any number of different validation things. sticker, whatever. Could be any number of things like that. Sure. And I've been stopped for that one too over the years. <laughs> uh, but anyway, here's how far is that officer allowed to go in that investigation? Uh, you know, if it's for an, an invalid sticker, for instance, can that officer say, "Open the trunk, I want to see what's in there"?
2: No, and now you're talking about search versus... And well, what they see... Identification. You are
0: they allowed to look in the backs oh, cl- roll the wind... I mean... Yeah,
2: why so I stated plain view. In other words, it's in plain view. I'm standing looking, I can see it. Okay. That's in plain view. Now, to search the trunk... Let's say I find the drugs in plain view, well that lets me enter into another search relative to the drugs and the vehicle can leave the scene so I get to secure it, I get to do a search and particularly if I've arrested a person, uh, you know, now we're getting into all the search authorities which is a different issue. You have liquor license act search authorities, you have search authorities under the criminal code, you have firearm search authorities under the criminal code. Really like I can't give you a broad answer to say, certainly not that one where, uh, oh and by the way just pop your trunk and well, you have to have a reason.
0: Okay, so that's that's a vehicular. Uh, people that are not in cars but pedestrians uh, it's, it seems to be a whole different set of circumstances and it would seem that the, the rationale for actually stopping somebody would, would be it's a different uh, I would say almost a different set of rules because I mean it could be somebody walking down the street, it could be somebody running. Uh, you don't know. I mean, you know, because we've seen bizarre examples of, of situations where there have been stops. I mean, not just here in Hamilton, but mm-hmm. I mean all over North America, yes. really. And and the question always arises well, why did the officer get involved in the first place? Uh, is it erratic behavior? Is it simply the time of day in the neighborhood in which they're in? I mean, wh- wh- how do you. Is there a standard that they have to, to, to follow here?
2: Well, really, the standard that's been provided is under the COI legislation where it says. For these reasons, you can stop. You know, warrant uh, for the purpose of investigation, all those other reasons. Arbitrary detention—it's never been supported, and that's certainly what the COI legislation is directed at: arbitrary stops, so, for no
0: reason. I mean, we've had a couple of incidents here in Hamilton where there've been street shootings, and and I know these are ongoing investigations because no arrests have been made on any of these things yet. Right. But in the in the immediate aftermath of something like that, if an officer is on scene. And somebody says, uh, Yeah, it was a guy who was about six foot three and he was wearing a black jacket and and blue jeans. You see somebody fitting that description. Do you stop that person?
2: Certainly. And that's the purposes of an investigation. You've got a shooting, you've got a suspect description. And again, you can articulate why you're doing what you're doing. The other piece relevant to those investigations is I may be approaching you to see if you were a witness. So I may come up to you and say, Did you see anything relevant to this? You can tell me to pound salt. But I also have an obligation to say, were you witness to this? And, you know, thankfully, uh, a lot of our citizens, yeah, no, I saw it. And, and you know what my name is? And, I may, and I'm going to ask them their name because they're a witness. Um, so there's all these dynamics relative to what is happening at the scene. The other piece, and, you know, having been on the street and it's been some time, but, um, you know, you can't tell everybody everything right away. One, you haven't done the investigation, so you don't know what's going on. Two. Um, not everything has unfolded, so I may just be asking you, did you see anything? As I say, but I haven't asked you your name. Koi is around the collection of information, meaning your name. Um, if I just do it arbitrarily, that's different than I'm entering an investigation, finding out if you're a witness, and finding out if you're a suspect.
0: That's a whole other dimension. How do you, as, as an administrator, though, in, in police services, as the chief, uh, and, and your deputies, and, 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 and I mean, I guess right down the line of command in situations like this, uh, deal with the reticence that some officers might have to do this sort of thing because of the ramifications of it. I mean, obviously you want these, these officers to do the, to the job to the best of their ability, and I know they do too. But at the same time, they feel, excuse the bad metaphor here, like they're being handcuffed.
2: Well, and I really think it depends on the jurisdiction. I've had some conversations. Quite frankly, I'm proud of our officers for continuing on They're meeting the obligations under the statute, and they're continuing to do the job, the tough job that they have to do, which under all those circumstances, right, you could have a suicidal person, you can have a domestic investigation, you can have child abuse offenses. I'd like to think that our people are not going to say, well, you know what, I'm not doing anything anymore because I'll get in trouble. Uh, the by virtue of us getting into this occupation in the first place, and it might sound corny, we wanted to help people. We have to work in within the statutory requirements that 's not a problem because we 're law enforcement officers but from what i 've seen and it's obviously i 've been watching this, our p- can people continue to do those investigations, continue to legal art- articulate why they 're doing we 've had gun seizures, drug seizures from traffic stops that's what we want to see. I certainly uh, think that's what the public wants to see. And relative to going out and asking people, did you see something? I think the public would expect us to continue that relevant investigations as well. And as I say, for the most part, we get very broad cooperation from our citizens. We're all trying to do the same thing, which is keep this community safe, you know, and we've never supported arbitrary detention. We never have.
0: Uh, I, let's get back to the phones here for a second. Mike's been waiting for a few minutes. Mike, appreciate your patience. Go ahead for the chief. Good morning. Good morning.
4: I just noticed you mentioned something earlier about marijuana, and uh, you compared it with Colorado uh, reports on incidents and accidents. Mm-hmm. Now, I the—I uh, looked that up. The American Journal of Public Health that found no increase in vehicle crashes, fatalities in Colorado and Washington relative to similar states after legalization.
2: Yeah, and again, I'd have to look at the you know the specific research that you got, specific research that I've been provided with.
4: Yeah, I'm sure there's there's opposing opinions yep. and media and all this other stuff. Yeah, I'm just saying, uh, marijuana. It should not be compared to alcohol. Marijuana does is, does not have the same effect as alcohol. It is. Well-known, it's well-tested over 40 years, 50 years, the effects of marijuana on its own. If you mix it with alcohol, you have a different issue.
0: Well, I I think the point the Chief's making, Mike, and I appreciate your call, is that uh, with anything, whether it's alcohol, whether it's opioids, whether it's prescription drugs or pot, uh, overuse of it, it, there is a level of impairment. and I, I, I can't see how anybody can argue about that. Uh, and uh, that is the concern. by the way, which uh, leads me very nicely into a, an email I got from Phil just a couple of seconds ago about enforcement once again. Uh, we just we talked about the obviously the impact about uh, people that are behind the wheel yep. uh, that uh, that could be under the influence. Uh, what about pedestrians? I mean, is is when it's legalized? And uh, Phil's point here is, does that mean you can walk down the street and smoke a joint? And, and or the uh, well is, is I mean, I can't walk down the street right now with a a, a bottle of rye whiskey. That's not supposed to be able to do that. Right. Where, where do you draw the line when it comes to to that kind of use? And a very
2: good point, that's what we're looking for, the regulations that the federal government's going to put out to, because you've got things like, does that mean you're going to be uh, smoking a doobie by the child care center? Um, so we looked at, you know, where are you prohibited from smoking in the first place? Or in the quote-unquote smoking section. I mean, a lot all of, those areas, right. of
0: places have designated smoking sections be- outside.
2: And you've got the whole issue of secondhand smoke, where a person says, okay, maybe you want to ingest it, but I don't, and I don't want it as an ancillary. So these are all the issues that the federal government still has to wrestle with. Just back to the point of impairment, and I mean, you know, whether it's a dispute about the effect of, uh, you can say, uh, and the federal government has looked at some, you know, thresholds for how many nanograms you can have uh, per milliliter of blood. The point about impaired driving is you can have a combination of all kinds of things, not just the alcohol and drugs, sleep deprivation, you can have... um, uh, you know, has a person eaten or not? What's the rate of ingestion of the chemical that they've ingested and its effect on the body? There's all these multiple factors. The point is, if you're driving impaired, that creates the risk, whatever the contributing factors are. So when we talk about the behavior, if you're weaving, you're slow to react, all those things that we normally look as of impairment, that to me is the point. Is, are you driving
0: an impaired state from a combination of all the stuff you've had? Or one thing. I mean, it could be any number of things. And because listen, I know I've had people that uh, that are pot advocates. Uh, and and again, as, as I mentioned many times, I mean, I, I don't have any skin in this game because I don't use the stuff, probably never will. Uh, but those that do, that's fine. That's their choice. That's their business. I don't much mind about that. But I want to make sure that whoever else is on the road with me uh, is is going to be driving at, at optimum level and not right. you know be um, impaired in any way, shape, or form. And and I think that's the concern that people have at this stage is, you know, if it has any impact at all, if you're not driving to your optimum level, then maybe you shouldn't be behind the wheel. And we haven't even added in the element of distracted driving amidst all that other
2: stuff. So there's there's so much going on inside a motor vehicle anymore. So your physical state
0: is is a really key factor, in my view. Well, and and to that point, I know we've only got about a minute left here. I mean, uh, again, the broader description of a distracted driving, and it's not just texting. Correct. Uh, by the way, I followed a guy up the Red Hill on Saturday that was doing that. Because uh, I could tell, you know, the the speed limit there was 90 kilometers. And this guy was a young guy in a, in a car, and he slowed down. He was doing about 60, as it turned right. out. And I thought, what the? And, and of course, I, I went to pass him, got up there, and I realized he just put his phone down and, boom, went up to 120 and zoomed right past me. And, uh, and if can, I can
2: pause quickly there, we just had an arrest for a person doing under the speed limit because and they were impaired by alcohol. It's an indicator. That's back to the behavior, right? You just said it. It's a 90 zone. They're doing 60. Back to my reasons for stopping somebody, that's not arbitrary. That doesn't really fit the mold. Okay, I'm going to do a traffic stop and see what's going on here.
0: Anyway, so there you go. Uh, so much more to talk about, but we'll have to wait for the next one. Appreciate the calls, everybody, and the emails and the tweets. Uh, Chief, uh, enjoy the rest of the summer. And, Thank you, uh, you too. As we had Klaus Wagner on the program a couple of days ago, and drive safely, everybody, because uh, summertime people get a little crazy. They party a little bit more and uh, think, I'm okay, I've only had a few drinks. Don't do it.